0: Welcome and thank you for joining us in our final episode of the Characters of Our Life story. Tonight, we're going to be looking at our love interest, which is God. We think that the love interest is Bathsheba or other people in the story, but, but really it's been God who's been the true one that has been following the protagonist, David, in this particular story. We're going to dig in and understand what it means to be the person who is pursued by God as we listen to this lecture by Dr. Bonfilio.
1: Hello, friends, and welcome back to the sixth and final week of this course on David. I've so much enjoyed these conversations and engaging this important topic with you. All along, we've been thinking about David through the lens of the various characters in his story the idea as you well know now is that we get to know david most fully and completely when we study Uh, those who he is in relationship with and how those relationships reveal key themes and topics in the overall story of 1st and 2nd Samuel. And up to this point, we've looked at various major characters that tend to appear in film and literature, and we've sought to uh, find analogs or similar characters in David's story and to use them as starting points for our discussions. Well, we're gonna do the same here in this last week, and we've got one major character type still to consider, and that's the love interest. Now the love interest is the person that the protagonist is irresistibly drawn to throughout the entire narrative. In fact, I would argue that the drama surrounding will they or will they not get together is really one of the crucial factors in the development of the storyline. And this is as true in cheesy romantic comedies as it is in famous works of Russian literature or Shakespearean plays. In almost every example I can think of from film and literature, who the love interest is, is really quite clear. You know that very explicitly. But when it comes to the story of David, I think it's a little bit less clear who we consider the love interest to be. I think there are several different possibilities that we might think through. On the one hand, we might think that David's love interest is one of the women that factor into his story. Maybe it's McCall, Saul's daughter, or maybe it's Abigail, the character we studied last week, or maybe even it's Bathsheba. David is said to have eight wives in the story of First and Second Samuel, which is a curious fact in its own right. But what is of note, if you read the text carefully, is that the text never says that David loved any of these women. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that he didn't love them, but the text does not highlight David's love for any of those women. The closest it gets to is the story of Abigail, which is found in 1 Samuel 25. If you recall in that story, David is taken by Abigail and he seeks to woo her or speak tenderly to her uh, to invite her in to marriage. And I think this is as close as we get to David showing affection to women in this story. But here again, the text stops short of saying that David loved Abigail. Now. I tend to think that David probably did love Abigail, but what's of note is that after 1 Samuel 25, in which Abigail is introduced, she plays no major role in the story of David. In fact, the only other time that we encounter her name in 1 and 2 Samuel is in several lists that name the women David was married to. So even if David does love Abigail, um, it it would be a stretch to say that their relationship drives the plot forward in the way that most uh, protagonist love interest relationships drive the plot forward in film and in literature. So what other possibilities might there be? Well, another thing we might consider is if Jonathan is David's major love interest in this story. If you remember back to our conversation about Jonathan earlier in this course, we noted that when he is introduced in 1 Samuel 18, it is said that Jonathan loved David uh, as his own soul. And in the chapters that follow, we see that love relationship or, or the ways in which Jonathan loves David get worked out in really significant ways. However, here again, the text never explicitly says that David loves Jonathan. It says that Jonathan loves David, but it doesn't explicitly name the reverse. The closest that we get to is that really uh, mournful hymn of lament. That David uh, prays after he has found out that Jonathan dies. It's in first, excuse me, second Samuel chapter one. And in it, if you recall, he says with respect to Jonathan, your love to me was wonderful passing the love of women. So David acknowledges how deeply Jonathan has loved him. And he acknowledges how valuable that love is to him. But the text again, stops short of saying that David loved Jonathan. Now, here again, I think we can reasonably infer that David did love Jonathan, but it's notable that the text does not explicitly name that fact. So, if David's major love interest here in First and Second Samuel is not the women he's involved with, and if it's not quite Jonathan, who might it be? Well I think the next possibility to consider is that it's God that God is David's major love interest throughout the story of 1st and 2nd Samuel and I think this idea has some potential to it. At one level we could argue that David's relationship with God is the very thing that drives the drama and the plot forward throughout these two books in scripture in much the same way that the protagonist love interest relationship drives the plot forward in Shakespearean plays or Russian literature or romantic comedies. Um, Or as a further dimension of this, we might think about that uh, David sins and uh, his rape of Bathsheba and murder of Uriah. We might think of that incident uh, rupturing the relationship between the protagonist and his love interest, God. And we might then think of the ensuing narratives, including uh, David's confrontation, uh, excuse me, Nathan's confrontation of David and all that follows as a way in which David and God become reconnected after the fissure in their relationship. This too would have parallels to romantic comedies and other films and literature, insofar as it's very common for the, the relationship between the protagonist, protagonist and the love interest to somehow be Disrupted. Maybe it's by uh, a misconnection or uh, it, the relationship is unreciprocated in some fashion, or maybe there's a breakup. So that's a common trope and motif in romantic comedies and films uh, that we could argue is also present in the story of David. So I think all of this is possible. And in many ways, Seeing God as a love interest, uh, I think, is more compelling and more persuasive than seeing David's wives as his major love interest, or even Jonathan. Even still, the picture is not as clear as me as we might think. In fact, in first and second Samuel, very little is said. Of David's faith or David's relationship with God. Just as the text never says that David loved Jonathan or the wives he's married to, the text never explicitly says that David loved God. And that might be surprising and even a little bit odd because we tend to think about David as this faithful character, as this faithful disciple, as this faithful follower of God. But the text in the end has really little to say about David's faith or his spirituality more broadly. All that we have are several uh, small texts that give us a little bit of a window into who David is as uh, as a follower of God. One of those windows is 1 Samuel 13, 14, which refers to God seeking a man after his own heart to replace Saul on the throne. Now we know that this man after God's own heart is David, And many readers of scripture interpret from this verse that what this is saying is that God is looking for a man, namely David, who is like God, that is whose character in faithfulness is, un- is like God's own character represented here in the language of God's heart. And that certainly is possible, but the Hebrew beneath this phrase is less clear that it means this. The Hebrew that gets translated after, as in after God's own heart, uh, actually means something closer to according to God's own heart. Read in this way, what the text is suggesting is not that God is looking for a pious man, but that God is going to make a decision about who will replace Saul according to his own criteria, according to his own heart. He's not going to look at what humans look at when selecting a king, the height, the strength, the, uh, the, the right lineage, the right family, the wealth. God's not going to use those criteria. It's not going to be according to human standards that God selects a new king. Rather, it's going to be according to God's standards that he selects a new king. So this might not give us as much insight into David's character as we sometimes think. Now, another window into David's spirituality or uh, uh, feelings towards God might be found in 2 Samuel 22. This poem or prayer, if you will, brings us back to an earlier part of the story to where David is still uh, being pursued by Saul and Saul is trying to kill David. And this prayer is like a prayer of thanksgiving for having been delivered from Saul's efforts to kill David. Let's look at the first seven verses of that prayer. Uh, And this is supposed to be David speaking these words. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer, my rock, my God, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my savior. You save me from violence. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. For the waves of death encompass me, the torrents of perdition assail me, the cords of Sheol entangle me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To to my God, I called from his temple. He heard my voice and my cry came to his ears. This, friends, is truly remarkable language. Note the imagery in the second and third verse here. These, all of these metaphors that are describing God as a shield and a rock and a fortress and as a place of refuge. Here we encounter a set of evocative metaphors, each of which builds upon the other and expressing the way in which God is David's source of protection and provision. Then in verse seven, we see David turning to the Lord in his greatest moment of distress described in the preceding verses as drowning in turbulent waters. And in that moment of distress, we hear David call upon God for deliverance and God shows up and delivers David. Um, Later in the psalm, David reflects upon his own character and obedience reading then from verses 21 through 25. David says the Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands, he has recompensed me for I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God for all his ordinances were before me and from his statutes I did not turn aside. I was blameless before him and I kept myself from guilt. Therefore, the Lord has recompensed me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his sight. Reading these lines at face value and we get the sense that David was a pious and upright law abiding citizen and king. He was a model of faithfulness in thought, words and deeds. This is the typical way that we think of David and from this we might well infer that David's primary love interest is in fact God. But by now in this course these words I'm suspecting are probably striking you as somewhat odd or a bit discordant from what we know from the rest of the narrative. For we know for certain as we read the entire story of David that David was not blameless in the sight of the Lord, and that he did, in fact, in many occasions, turn away from God's laws and God's ordinances. God's ordinances were not always before David. God's law did not always direct David's life. This, at best, this prayer is sort of a whitewashed or sanitized version of David's actual track record as a king and as a human being. Further, we know that the Lord did not reward David according to his own righteousness or obedience. Now, yes, God did select David and God did anoint him and God did give him an everlasting promise. But outside of this prayer, the text never gives us reason to think that that anointing, that choosing, that blessing was uh, on the basis of David's own Merit. In fact, if we look back to 2 Samuel 7, that text that we have seen again and again in this course where God does offer David this everlasting promise, it is clear that God's promise to David in that text is pure gift. That is to say, it's an act of unmerited grace. It's not a reward. It's not a way of of patting David on the back for being such a good guy and such a faithful follower of Yahweh. It is a pure gift given to David on the basis of God's uh, chesed or loving kindness, not on David's track record or moral character. So what's going on here? How do we make sense of 2 Samuel 22 in the language in light of what we know about David? How do we understand this prayer in in relation to what we know from other parts of the story? Well, on this point, most scholars point out that these words, the words of 2 Samuel 22, do not fit into the narrative flow of 2 Samuel. And that's probably relatively obvious to you, because by the time we arrive near the end of 2 Samuel, David is old and advanced in years. But 2 Samuel 22 brings us back to an earlier moment uh, where David was fleeing from Saul. So this is something of of an appendix appendix. It's a tack on to the story. It's something that has been added later to give us further insight into David. But there's another thing to notice here too. Uh, And what scholars point out and what's going to be readily evident to you as I put these two texts in relationship to one another on your screen is that there was a close correspondence between 2 Samuel 22 and Psalm 18 you can see here on your screen that the words are almost exactly identical. And what you see here in the first few verses on your screen is true of the rest of the Psalm and the rest of Samuel, uh, 2 Samuel 22 as well. It's as if there's almost a carbon copy of the Psalm in the words of 2 Samuel 22. Now, the question that we might be wondering then is which came first? Was it the Psalm or the words of 2 Samuel 22. Um, In other words, did David speak these words in 2 Samuel 22 and they were later uh, transferred over to the Psalm or rather did the Psalm come into existence first? And then the Psalm was inserted here as a type of appendix to round out uh, David's perspective on his life. Well, it's a difficult question to untangle but there's one textual clue among others that I think gives us an insight. Let's look closely at verse 7 in 2 Samuel 22. It reads, In my distress I called upon the Lord. To my God I called. And we can imagine David actually saying these words with respect to Saul. But listen to what comes next. David says, From his temple he heard my voice and my cry came to his ears. Now, something should strike you as odd and anachronistic here. See, we know that David did not build the temple. The temple was not and could not have been around uh, if David actually said these words in the context of First and Second Samuel. It's not until Solomon that the temple is built. So, it doesn't make sense. For David to have prayed from his temple, he heard my voice because that structure, that institution simply was not in existence during his lifetime. So while it would make uh, be a problem for our reading of this text in the context of David's story, it wouldn't be a problem if we read this reference to the temple. Uh, as in the context of the Psalms. Most scholars agree that the Psalms take shape much later, well after David's life, and long after the temple had been built. So from the perspective of the Psalms, it makes sense to imagine God hearing our prayer from the temple. In fact, many of the Psalms were written as a part of a liturgy to be uh, enacted and said in the context of temple worship. So in other words, if we understand these words as originally being the words of the psalmist, the reference to the temple makes all the sense in the world. If we imagine these words originally being David's words, then it's very difficult to make sense of why David would have referenced uh, the temple, something that would not come into existence for at least another generation. So this is one reason why scholars are fairly convinced that Psalm 18 comes first and much later after the time of David, and then is later inserted here into 2 Samuel 22. So these are not necessarily, uh, no, most certainly not the words of David. Now, that being said, none of this means that David is uninterested in God. The point I want to make is this. If we only had the story of 1st and 2nd Samuel to go on, if that's all that we knew, the right if we could take those two books out of scripture and that's all the information we could glean about David. We likely would not come away with a strong sense that God was often on David's mind, nor even that David was a man of great faith or great moral character. We only have a very dim view of David's faith perspective and his spirituality. And we might have serious uh, questions about whether or not God really was a major love interest for David. So then if that's the case, where do we get this well-established idea in popular Christianity that David was exemplar, was an exemplar of faith, that David really did love God and that we should emulate him. Well, I think that this view is primarily based on what is said of David in other parts of scripture, not first and second Samuel, but other parts of scripture. Let me give you a couple examples. As we've talked about earlier in this course, there is a second version of David's story, a version that parallels the events in First and Second Samuel, um, but is a much shorter, abridged version of it. And that version of David's story is in First Chronicles ten through twenty-nine. And as we've mentioned before, the version of David's story found in Second, uh, excuse me, First Chronicles ten through 29, leaves out almost all of the bad moments in David's story. So there's no rape of Bathsheba, there's no uh, murder of Uriah the Hittite and various other, uh, there was no s- struggle with David's uh, kids. There's no rebellion of Absalom. All of the things that might, might cast doubt on David's character or David's faithfulness is left out of the version found in First Chronicles. So if one reads First Chronicles, one really gets a very different sense of what sort of man and King David was. And I think from reading first Chronicles, <clears throat> one can more reasonably suggest that God is David's love interest. So that's one other part of scripture that, that forms uh, our sense that David was indeed a man of great faith. The other of course, are the Psalms. For a long time in Christian uh, tradition, it has been assumed and thought that David is the author of the Psalms, or David is the author of at least most of the Psalms. And there's several reasons why uh, the church has tended to think this. One, uh, because in the story of First and Second Samuel, David is known to be a musician. He plays the lyre or a, a stringed harp-like instrument. And we know that the music, that the Psalms are musical and lyrical. They were meant to not just be said or read, but they were meant to be prayed and sung in the context of worship. So this idea that David is a musician often then goes to this idea that David wrote the Psalms. The other reason uh, why uh, many Christians think that David wrote the Psalms is because of what are known as the superscriptions in Psalms. These are brief notes that precede the first line of a Psalm and that says something about the context uh, and provide some information about the psalm. Now, in many of these cases, in fact, in 73 of the 152, 150 psalms, um, reference is made in the superscriptions uh, to the psalm being, quote, of David, of David. Now, sometimes all we read is that the psalm, all that the superscription provides is just that. It's a psalm of David, and you see that here uh, on your screen with respect to Psalm 11. In other cases, we pro- we are provided through the superscription much more detailed information and not just says that it's a Psalm of David, but it names a circumstance in David's life in which this prayer would have been created, said, or prayed. And we here we have an example from Psalm 51, uh, which is David's confession after his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah. There are a number of other examples of both types of superscriptions. So it's on the basis of these superscriptions, which refer to the Psalms as being of David, that many have concluded that these are David's words. And if that is the case, and we read the Psalms and then work backward to sort of create a picture of David's Spirituality, then surely we do uh, come up with a portrait of David as a man of deep faith because the words of these psalms, their praise, their thanksgiving, their doxology, express a profound sense of trust and love in God. And so, if these are truly David's words, then I think that would bolster our sense that the major uh, love interest in David's life is indeed God. But here again, things are not quite so simple. Most scholars uh, agree that David, it's very unlikely that David is the actual author of the Psalms. And there's a couple reasons why scholars think that. For one, these superscriptions that we have referenced are not originally part of the Psalms, that is to say, when the Psalms first come into the existence, they do so just as discrete prayers without the superscriptions. The superscriptions are added later by interpreters of scripture, uh, as sort of a reference point for how to think about these psalms. So they're not actually originally part of the scripture itself. They come along much later, perhaps uh, even 500 years later, if far into the post-exilic period, is when these superscriptions come into existence. So they're not exactly like the, uh, like the author page in a book. If you open a book and see on that first Uh, cover, first cover page beneath it, it says, you know, written by, published by. We shouldn't read the superscriptions in that sense because they really aren't originally part of the words of the Psalms themselves. That's one reason. The second reason to doubt uh, that David wrote the Psalms is actually has to do with grammar. The phrase of David in Hebrew is la David, and you can hear David there, that's David's name, and the la in La David uh, is a preposition. Now this preposition, like many prepositions in Hebrew is very flexible. And on occasion it can mean of, but this actually is a very rare use of this particular preposition. So if I wanted to say Liz's computer or the computer of Liz, or even the computer that Liz made, there's a lot of ways to say that in Hebrew, uh, none of which, feature the preposition la. So if one wanted to indicate that David wrote these Psalms, or that these are David's Psalms, or these are Psalms of David in the way they're typically understood, one in Hebrew would not use the construction la David. They would use something else. There'd be very uh, good and widely recognized grammatical constructions that would describe David as the author of the Psalms if that's indeed what the intention was of the superscriptions. So what does la mean if it doesn't indicate authorship or possession? Well, there's a couple different possibilities. La can mean um, about, as in sort of in reference to. And if that's the case, then to say that this psalm is *Lach David, then it's a psalm not necessarily written by David, but it's a psalm that can be read as referencing David, or it can be a psalm that's read uh, about David. Uh, David, in this case, is the subject matter of the psalm, but not necessarily the author. Another thing that Luck can mean is uh, it can mean in the manner of as in this prayer or this psalm is said in the manner of how David used to pray, but these aren't actually David's words themselves. Third and finally, and this is probably the best uh, and most grammatically sustainable uh, suggestion, is that lach means to or for, in the sense of being dedicated to or for. So when read in that way, the psalm isn't of David as in his own writing, but this psalm is written By someone else at a very different time and has been dedicated to David. It's offered on behalf. Of David. It's sort of like if you uh, see some academic books, um, there might be a preface and the author says something about how this book is dedicated to her husband or to her child or some other such thing. Well, that would be probably the best grammatical way of reading these superscriptions. These Psalms are dedicated to David or rather to the memory of David, but it's not suggesting that David wrote these Psalms. So, if that's the case, then the words of the Psalms are a less reliable window into David's actual character or into uh, this question of whether God is truly David's love interest. So, with all of that said, let me return to where we began. Um, Is there truly a love interest in 1 and 2 Samuel? For David, it's it's obviously not the women he marries, nor is it obviously Jonathan. And while we might reasonably suppose that David loved God, David's love for God does not play a major role in the story. The plot is not driven along by David's love for God in the way that say the plot of Sleepless in Seattle is driven along by the romance between the characters played by Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks. Even still, I wanna suggest friends that the idea of a love interest is a relevant one for thinking about the drama in first and second Samuel. What's front and center though is not David's love for God but rather God's love for David. God is the one who longs for David and is irresistibly drawn to him and preoccupied with him. Um, It's God is the one who makes promises to the one he loves and faithfully fulfills those promises despite the errors of the one loved. It is God who is heartbroken when David is unfaithful and it is God who continually comes back to David despite all of his faults and his failures. What I'm suggesting then is that the drama of the story is driven forward by God's love for David, not the reverse. In fact, I think we could go so far to say that when seen in the broadest theological perspective, the protagonist of 1st and 2nd Samuel is actually not David, even though we've been arguing that all throughout this course. Rather, I think one could say that the protagonist in the story is God. And it's David who is God's love interest. I think, friends, that that framework actually makes more theological sense of what's happening in First and Second Samuel. Now, this certainly casts a different light on David because we're so accustomed to thinking of David as this great and wonderful hero of faith. And, and many of us are uncomfortable when we begin to see David in a different light. But I want to suggest that it's actually really good news for us to see that it is David who is God's love interest and not the other way around. For what we find here in 1st and 2nd Samuel is not a story of one faithful man who we must emulate, rather what we find here is a relentlessly faithful and loyal God to a man, to a human who is deeply flawed. And I would argue that what is at play here, this dynamic is also at play with almost every other biblical character, whether it's Sarah or Abraham, Moses or Miriam, or whoever we encounter in scripture, they are at times models of faith, but none of those characters are perfect. And all of them, in fact, have deep and significant flaws. And if the Old Testament is a story about anything, it's a story about a God who sticks with a people who continually wander and stray. Uh, into sin, into doubt, into idolatry and to injustice. And the good news of the Old Testament friends, I think is the good news of the New Testament. It's the good news of God's gift of grace to all of us. That God sticks with each of us despite our own moral failures, despite our own doubts and inconsistencies in faith. Maybe our sins and failures aren't David's. Surely for many of us they're look different, but maybe friends, we each can see ourselves in David, or maybe there's more of David in us than we would like to admit. Um, That's certainly the case for me. And friends, I find that to be um, something encouraging in the end, because from these stories, we learn of a God who sticks with us, who forgives and who relents from punishing and whose promises remain steadfast, even when we are at our worst. And that was the case for David. And thanks be to God that it is the case for many of us. Friends, this brings us to a close of our series on David. I've had a ton of fun engaging this topic with you. There's one more discussion uh, session to follow, and I'm going to turn things back over to you all for that conversation. Thank you so much for engaging and for being a part of this course. And we look forward to doing more things like this with you in the future. Until then, take care and be well, friends. Bye.
0: For our office hours conversation in this final episode, both myself and Melissa join the professors from Candler as we begin to understand what it means to be pursued by God, about how that grace in our lives is God chasing us and trying to love us and help us put God first in our life. Let's listen in. So welcome, everyone, to our last Office Hours with Dr. Evie and Dr. Ryan. We're kind of bringing this podcast to a close, this whole series. It's been amazing. But we can't leave away from talking about the archetype of characters in a story without talking about the love interest. Yeah, it's like Ooh. every good rom <laughs> no, We talk about all these <laughs> other myths and superheroes and stuff. Now we're getting into my language. It's the love interest. So let's talk about that. Let's yeah. jump in. Who really is is the love interest in the story, I guess?
1: Yeah, this is interesting because it's not there's not a one answer to this question of who the love interests are. We've had various different figures who love mm-hmm. one another. We've heard of Jonathan loving David, we've heard of McCall loving David, we heard of God loving David, right? So there's a lot of different ones that we can play with in in throughout the whole story.
0: And so then who are the love interests of David? Which one do we want to jump on? Or are there any, is my question. Probably not Bathsheba. (laughs) No. No. No.
2: And things don't end well with McCall. No. And even Abigail, who's like this really, um, really amazing woman. I mean, she's got some chutzpah, you know. Um, She even gets sidelined after a while. Mm -hmm. You know, we don't hear much about her. And so where is that? that character yeah. that just doesn't let go.
1: Yeah. And, you know, interestingly, just from like a grammatical perspective, David is the object of the verb love uh, numerous times. But David is never the subject of the verb love in these texts. And that doesn't mean that David didn't love anyone. But it it means that from as we encounter this story, it's ambiguous mm. who David has loved. Like we don't hear that David has loved Jonathan. Maybe a hint of it. In David's lament for Jonathan after he dies, but not in the story itself.
0: No, right? we make so much of the love between these two. But the truth is, as we've said earlier, Dr. Eby, you said it a couple weeks ago, th- Jonathan – loves David, but David never says he's loved. Even in Lament, it's more of, look how much he loved me. Yeah. And it was so wonderful. <laughs> the only, I think the glimpse is what you brought up is when he goes to Jonathan's son and brings him yes. to the table. There is a sense of, and now is that caretaker? Is that is that love? I mean, I think David loves himself. Mm. That's a very obvious, (laughs) one of his interests is the love of himself and his power.
1: That's the ego again that we talked about Mm -hmm. earlier.
0: Right. And I think it's that, that's where the nemesis ego character comes in, because I think it's a constant struggle for him. Because if I look at the Psalms, I do see him trying to love God and him trying to put God first and wrestling with that nemesis ego struggle within himself of who's more important here. Um, But even that is a love, God protect me, God show me favor. Um, so, So, I don't know. I don't know that we ever get that.
3: Well, and if you go back to our conversation about the antagonizer, this question of his authenticity and mm-hmm. when what what is he trying to do is there always something something uh, motivating what he's doing that that might not be fully authentic to him, that it's it's motivated by that love of power, that love of himself, that needing to to prove his worthiness. Um yeah, I I don't know. I don't see love from David. Um, and I wonder if that's some of the the f- I, flaw may not be the right word, but flaw in his character. Mm-hmm. That's that's why he struggles throughout his whole story. That it's ups and downs constantly, and he hasn't found an object for him for his love.
1: Right, and one of the things that maybe that makes me wonder is maybe we've gotten it wrong all along. Maybe David is not the protagonist of the story, and the question isn't well, who is who are David's love interests? But maybe it's that God. All along has been the protagonist. And so what the question we need to ask is who are God's love interests in this story? And I think that's David. I think that's what's clear from these narratives is that David is God's love interest, not mm. necessarily the other way around.
0: Well, when we talked about that this last Lent, we went on the hero's journey mm. and kind of walked mm-hmm. through that the protagonist, we try to be the heroes of our own story, which which David struggled with. Mm-hmm. Um, but the real hero in the end is always God. The real protagonist is the one who writes our story into being. The one who comes and the real protagonist for us would be Jesus, you know, mm-hmm. that the divine playwright writes into our story and invites us to take the stage with. And and so, yeah, I... that. That, that driving hesed, that loving faithfulness of God, mm-hmm. no matter what David does, God does not relent, God does not yeah. leave him, um, is the story of the entire Bible, and it's that's the right. story of us as well. We are the love interest that God does anything to do to, to continue the story that he wrote. That, I think that's
2: so true because I, I read so much of Israel into David's story. You know like you, you have these two warring households these and they're so they're so unbelievably close that's yes. the thing is that they're so when you look at the tribe of Benjamin and the tribe of Judah they're literally next door neighbors <laughs> these they're they're practically the same people they have even the same common enemies and when David chases away the enemies of Judah he's chasing away the enemies of Benjamin yeah. so these these houses are related like more than just you know being being uh, being close. And so when we look at David's family at war with itself, when we think about his children killing each other, what we're really seeing is this bigger picture of Israel. And so God's love for David, God's promise of faithfulness to David is also in some sense God's iteration of his love for Israel. And what's interesting is all the things that God promises to do in Second Samuel 7 for David, these are the promises God has made to Israel about protection from enemies, mm-hmm. and loving and nurturing your offspring, and giving you what you need to grow, and being steadfastly with you. These are all the things that God promised Israel. We, we can read those at the end of Deuteronomy. All of these covenant promises um, are right there.
1: Yeah, that's right. And, you know, just playing with this idea that God's the protagonist, not just of this story, but of all of Scripture, it makes me think of, you know, I I think of Shakespearean tragedies, this idea of unrequited love, where there's one person loves another, but it's not returned. Is that not the story of all Scripture (laughs) and of David, of like God loving people who don't typically or even often love back? What do you all think of that?
3: Mm. Well, I think when you talk about this being a metaphor for Israel, when you talk about how we how we use scripture faithfully, we look at these characters in scripture and, and we often uh, boil it down. I think, Ryan, you said this um, in another conversation we were having. We boil it down to, let's lift these people up so we can emulate them. And when we look at the whole of David's story, it is not a story we necessarily want to emulate. And yet it probably represents the stories we actually are living.
1: Yes. True. yes,
3: Is that we have ups and downs. We have moments of failure and, and moments of victory, moments of, of, uh, of, of living into our highest moral ideals and moments where we disappoint even ourselves. Yeah. And so when we take the, the character out of the, the protagonist seat and we put God there, you then are able to shape your own story in light of this in a different way.
1: So let me ask on that just further cuz so I love how you're putting that Melissa. Would you say that it's good news that David fails in this story and that it's not a story about God excuse me David's love for God but that it's a story about God's love for David and what way is that good news what way is that gospel for us to hear that message in this story
0: because it is our story and 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 even though was it Paul that says he was a man after God's own heart I, there's still something I want to cling to about that because it reminds me when I read the story that, yeah, he failed and so do I. God still loves me. And so I'm going to try. Yeah. I'm going to try as best I can and I'm going to fail again. Mm-hmm. And and God's still going to love me. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know that we can ever match the love loving faithfulness that has said of God. Mm-hmm. But if I'm on a journey to continue to try, um, and if I'm on a journey to wrestle with the nemesis of myself, you know, and continue to to let that has said be my North Star. Um, yes, it's unrequited love, but it's unrequited love on a journey of of us together, if mm. that makes sense.
1: I don't mm-hmm. know. Yeah, and that phrase uh, that comes up, I'm forgetting now what chapter it's in, uh, but where it's said of David that he, I think it's chapter 12, that he's a man after God's own heart. And that makes us think that like, oh, like. David has this like godlike heart. He's a really pious person. But to geek out on the Hebrew for a second, that phrase um, can be read quite differently. It's it's a man um, God chooses David according to his own heart. That is according to the way God
2: mm-hmm. views
1: the world. That's from where he makes the decision, not according to the standards of the world. He doesn't tall that doesn't pick the tallest man, the eldest son. So it's not a saying about no. David was a real pious guy. It's just that no. God chose the way God chose, not according to His standards, not the standards of the world. So it might be that in the mm-hmm. end, that God isn't there. David isn't a man after God's own heart in that sense that we often think it is.
0: Except that I want to live up to that. Yeah. Th- yeah. That's the thing. That's yeah. the I want to try yeah. to be that person. Well, that it doesn't given. say he
2: attains God's heart, no. but if he's still seeking after it, and what I what I think is really hopeful about that is when David responds to God's offer of the covenant in Second mm-hmm. Samuel eight, he says. Who am I that you have brought me this far? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I love that this far, meaning we'll never go all the way as long as we are living this life, but we've come this far. So I think you're right that there is some hope that we can, um, w- will we be perfect? No. But look how far God can bring us mm-hmm. and look at how much further we can go, that it is a journey, that it is a constant seeking after and that's the thing that God rewards. Not that someone has attained my heart, but mm-hmm. that they're still after it. They're right. still they're still seeking that.
3: And that's and that's love, right? Yeah. If we if we talk about that traditional idea of a love interest or or romantic love. If we mm-hmm. think about partnering Pursuit. with someone in life, it's about someone who's willing to stick with you yes. yeah. it's and go through the whatever, whatever comes. And it's not about having it all figured out from day one. My husband and I joke that um, we're not the people we married. Oh, um, yeah. This is not the man I married, thank yeah. God. Um, yeah. <laughs> because we have both grown and we have yeah. both stuck with each other and we have yeah. both continued to wrestle together. And so I think there is something to calling God a love interest and calling humanity God's love interest that actually speaks to, to truly what we see as, as romantic love too. Interestingly enough. I had when a wrestle.
1: Oh, good. Oh, yeah. It's the it's the
0: two it's the it's a walking alongside and accepting you as you are but pursuing the best out of you. Yes. 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 And and it's yes. it's those two it's things that that work in harmony together.
3: I don't have to yeah.
0: hide anything now.
3: Right. right. And I don't want to stay here, right? Yeah.
1: yeah. Mm-hmm. And that tension is hard to maintain in human relationships, but so too with God. To to trust that both can be true at once. I love that.
0: Well, and, and John Wesley, I mean, from our, our understanding, you know, being perfected in love has to do with I can learn. I mean, he believed we could learn to love others as God loves. But that's others. <laughs> it doesn't say we can learn to love God the way God loves us. Uh, yeah. And I wonder if there's something in that because because to be able to do that means God's love is is somehow there's a a boundary around it that we can Mm. get our arms around. And I don't think we want to. And so I think it's always unrequited love because I don't want to get my arms around and be able to love the way God loves God because God's love is limitless.
1: Yeah. And that's the difference in the story is that, that is, that's what Scripture speaks to as a different quality and sort of faithfulness. Uh, I had a wrestling coach who <clears throat> talked about like commitment in terms, he had this word stick And I love, it's a made up word, but I, it actually makes sense of God, right? It, scripture is a story about God's stick <laughs> with us in all of our fa- failures and all of our flaws and doubts and squabbles. God sticks to it with us and yet also calls us to be something uh, different, something better, something more fully reflective of what God's image uh, ought to be in the human person.
2: It uh, makes me think of uh, the, that we've used the word wrestle. And, yeah. you know, you think about Jacob, you know, wrestling God, and I know, Ryan, <laughs> you, you were a wrestling coach, but I, you can't wrestle and not simultaneously embrace yeah. Mm. You know, so this, this beautiful image. There's of, intimacy. Yeah, you, right. you can embrace what is great and what is lovable, and you can wrestle out and want the best for someone and want them to be um, made better and made even more whole. So this, this, this dual embrace and wrestling is what love looks like, you know. Mm. And I think that that's beautiful that Israel gets its name from that very act mm-hmm. of struggle right. mm-hmm. that is both difficult and beautiful
1: yeah, to be a people of God is to be Israel, is to be someone who wrestles with God and not resolves it, yep. but is in that process of wrestling with God. And even the way that word is 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 made, Israel, again, to geek out on some Hebrew. Um, <laughs> it's 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 a verbal form that implies a continuous nature to it. It's not once and resolved. I wrestled with God, I won or lost, and now it's done. but that that's the vocation, right? That's the vocation of a disciple. Is to be one who wrestles, and I say that not just because I'm a former wrestling coach. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, it 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 moves us past this idea that somehow we get to an age of discipleship, you know. And it's we talk about it a lot around here. There is no age of retirement. Um, uh-huh. it, you're it's always growing, just like there is no end of. We talk about marriage or or being in love with someone as a continual growth pattern towards one another. And as you continue to develop and grow, you're still going to grow towards one another because you'll never it, – it's an infinite movement.
1: Mm. Hmm. Yeah, that's great.
0: So
3: I think it is good news. I think to come back to where this kind mm-hmm. of kicked us off, I think this this is good news for those of us who um, have not yet reached perfection. Mm.
1: So that's, that's me.
3: That's that's, yeah. that's yeah. me. Yeah, I'm good at that. so I, I think <laughs> yeah. I think stories like this, um, we we mistake how to use characters in that's right. in stories, but in scripture in particular as always emulations of 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 reaching towards how they operate rather than seeing the bigger picture of yeah. the story and seeing David as God's love interest and thus Israel as God's love interest yeah. and thus us as God's love interest that definitely brings us full circle.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Great. Well, friends, thank you for this conversation. It's so good to learn with you and from you as we wrestle with these texts, to use that metaphor again, <laughs> and to think about how it relates across the centuries and across the cultures to who we are and where we are as a church today.
3: Well, thank you for joining us and Absolutely. being part of um, what we are going on as a, as a journey, as a congregation, and um, wrestling, helping us wrestle, teaching us how to wrestle better um, with Scripture and with, with our, our faith as we walk together. So...
0: And what's coming next is after we've studied the characters in our life story, now we're going to start to write our own story. So what is my story and how is God continuing to move me from, through, and to something Mm -hmm. on a continual journey, Mm -hmm. walking alongside um, being God's love interest? So it's a perfect segue to what's coming next. So we hope you'll join us and we know you guys will join us as well. So thanks, guys.
1: Great. Thanks so much. Thanks.